All right. Well, looks good for today. Um, how about 40 unique Roger Federer plays? <laughs> I'm just, how many, how many ways can you hit a tennis ball? Well, yes. And also, isn't every play basically unique in tennis? Like, yeah. what does that mean? That, I mean, here's a question. Can uh, a, a tennis announcer be like, wow, we haven't seen a between the legs, uh, you know, whatever uh, bomb since uh, Mr. <laughs> uh, Bob? Yeah, Corn- Corn- Cornelius ha- Haxley in, in, in 1972. 62. Yeah. yeah. It w- I look, if there was like a Roger Federer play where he did like a cartwheel flip across the uh, the the tennis court. And hit it midair, you know? I would like to see it. I would like to see it. Uh, hello. Welcome to Infinite Cast, uh, the pod jest. Um, I was just trying to, before we started, trying to remember where we have been the last few segments. Yes. Uh, because, I don't know, I guess it can get a little disjointed when we just, like, basically are reading us episodically, like, yeah. very, very purposely. So we obviously just had the fairly traumatic conclusion of Eschaton, yes. where it seemed like some a, lot, a number of these children were actually injured. One of, one of those kids is having way too much screen time, if you know what I mean. Yes. Uh, and I, I made the guess that we're going to go back to Ennett House for this, for this segment, just because it seems like that's the, uh, the thing that we haven't seen in a long time. Because mm-hmm. before this, we had the long, steeply Morath segment, right? And then I feel like we got, we were doing some like Canadian history. We yep. were talking about like the, um, the, the track foot, jumpers. The, the yeah. end note. Um, we had Mario, of course, long, long bit about Mario. We had, um, I feel like we got a lot of Joe and Condenza backstory and a lot with Joel for a bit. Mm-hmm. And then going back even further, uh, we had uh, poor Tony's uh, cosmic aneurysm scene. Yes. Um, and I think that that fairly well covers the last like chunk of the, yeah. of the book. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been a while since we've been, we've checked in on Don Gately. So that's my, um, that's my guess for where we go on this one. Yes. We're not quite at Ennett House. We're traveling. Traveling. Ennett House steps out. <laughs> out Shall on we, the town? Out on the town. All right. Let's, let's get into we it. Hit the road. All right. 8th November, year of the depend, adult undergarment, interdependence day, God Yamus, Egitor, which again, still did not look up how to pronounce it, and I won't. God Yamus Egitor? God Yamus Egitor. What is that, like Latin or something? Is it like it's, the slogan of interdependence? If, if you want to look it up, uh, I, I'd leave. God Yamus Egitor. I'll, I'll, I'm just going to have to take a, a shot in the dark about how to even spell that. Yeah, the g- don't ask for the country of origin or anything like that. <laughs> well, wait, so is that like the slogan of um, It must be the slogan like an of Interdependence Day. Type thing? It must be specifically Interdependence Day because we're still on Interdependence Day. Eschaton was also on Indep- uh, Interdependence Day. God yes. God uh, yes. <laughs> G-A-U-D-E-A-M-U-S space I-G-I-T-U-R. Well, God yes, Egitur is a song by Canadian Brass. Canadian Brass. Yeah. Gadiemus Egitor. Let us. Wait. Gadiemus. Gadiemus Egitor is like, let us, like, as in, like, let us go to the. Um, okay. Is uh, it just like a sort of invocation? Yeah. Maybe it, it means something like, we go. Let's fucking go. Yeah. LFG. Let's fucking go. Okay. That's honestly a, a, LFG. LFG. All right. Let's go. Boston AA is like AA nowhere else on this planet. Just like AA every place else, Boston AA is divided into numerous individual AA groups, and each group has its particular group name, like the Reality Group, or the Alston Group, or the Clean and Sober Group. 
Sounds like the uh, DSA caucuses. Mm-hmm. And each group... Ho- <laughs> the yeah, Bread the and Roses group, AA group, yeah. Uh, each group holds its regular meeting once a week. But almost all Boston groups' meetings are speaker meetings. That means that at the meetings, there are recovering alcoholic speakers who stand up in front of everybody at an amplified podium and share their experience, strength, and hope. Which takes us to end note 131. Uh, before Boston Groups' regular speaker meetings, there are often closed half-hour beginners discussion meetings where newcomers can share their cluelessness, weakness, and despair <laughs> in a warm, supportive, private atmosphere. Uh, back to the text. And the singular thing is that these speakers are not ever members of the group that's holding the meeting in Boston. The speakers at one certain group's weekly speaker meeting are always from some other certain Boston AA group. The people from the other group who are here at like your group speaking are here on something called a commitment. Commitments are where some members of one group commit to hit the road and travel to another group's meeting to speak publicly from the podium. Then a bunch of people from the host group hit the opposite lane of the same road on some other night and go to the visiting group's meeting to speak. Groups always trade commitments. You come speak to us and we'll come speak to you. It can seem bizarre. You always go elsewhere to speak. At your own group's meeting, you're a host. You just sit there and listen as hard as you can, and you make coffee in 60-cup urns and stack polystyrene cups in big ziggurats and sell raffle tickets and make sandwiches, and you empty ashtrays and scrub out urns and sweep floors when the other group's speakers are through. You never share your experience, strength, and hope on stage behind a fiberboard podium with its cheap non-digital PA systems mic, except in front of some other Metro Boston group which takes us to EndNote 132. The word group in AA group is always capitalized because Boston AA places uh, enormous emphasis on joining a group and identifying yourself as a member of this larger thing, the group. Likewise caps in like commitment, giving it away, and see. So just imagine that in your mind. I'm, I'm seeing it. Back to the text. Every night in Boston, bumper-stickered cars full of totally sober people wall-eyed from caffeine and trying to read illegibly scrawled directions by the dashboard lights crisscross the city, heading for the church basements or bingo halls or nursing home cafeterias of other AA groups to put on commitments. Being an active member of a Boston AA group is probably a little bit like being a serious musician or like athlete in terms of constant travel. The White Flag Group of Enfield, Massachusetts, in metropolitan Boston, meets Sundays in the cafeteria of the Provident Nursing Home on Hanneman Street, off Commonwealth Avenue, a couple blocks west of Enfield Tennis Academy's flat-topped hill. Tonight, the White Flag Group is hosting a commitment from the Advanced Basics Group of Concord, a suburb of Boston. (laughs) Advanced Basics. The Advanced Basics people have driven almost an hour to get here. Plus, there's always the problem of signless urban streets and directions given over the phone. On this coming Friday night, a small horde of white flaggers will drive out to Concord to put on a reciprocal commitment for the Advanced Basics Group. Traveling long distances on signless streets trying to parse directions like take the second left off the rotary by the driveway to the chiropractors <laughs> and getting lost and shooting your whole evening after a long day just to speak for like six minutes at a plywood podium is called getting active with your group. <laughs> the speaking itself is known as 12-step work or giving it away. Giving it away is a cardinal Boston AA principle. The terms derive from an epigrammatic description of recovery in Boston AA. You give it up to get it back to give it away. 
as enunciated in the uh, the famous Red Hot Chili Pepper of song of the same name. Yeah, it's a uh, Buddhist. Sobriety in Boston is regarded as less a gift than a sort of cosmic loan. You can't pay the loan back, but you can pay it forward by spreading the message that despite all appearances, AA works. Spreading this message to the next new guy who's tottered into a meeting and is sitting in the back row unable to hold his cup of coffee. The only way to hang on to sobriety is to give it away. And even just 24 hours of sobriety is worth doing anything for. A sober day being nothing short of a daily miracle. If you've got the disease like he's got the, uh, the disease, says the advanced basics member who's chairing this evening's commitment, saying just a couple public words to the hall before he opens the meeting and retires to a stool next to the podium and calls his group speakers by random lot. The chairperson says he didn't used to be able to go 24 lousy minutes without a nip before he came in. Coming in means admitting that your personal ass is kicked and tottering into Boston AA, ready to go to any lengths to stop the shitstorm. The Advanced Basics chairperson looks like a perfect cross between pictures of Dick Cavett and Truman Capote, <laughs> which takes us to endnote 133. Gately's little bedroom in the damp Ennett House basement is plastered all over every part of every wall that's dry enough to take tape with sc cut out scotch tape photos of all sorts of variegated and esoteric celebrities past and present, which are varied as residents throw magazines into the EMPHH dumpsters and are frequently selected because the celebrities are somehow grotesque. It's a kind of compulsive habit held over from Gately's fairly dysfunctional North Shore childhood when he'd been a clipping and taping fiend. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the text. Uh, except this guy's also like totally almost flamboyantly bald. And to top it off, he's wearing a bright black country western shirt with Baroque curlicues of white nody piping across the chest and shoulders and a string tie plus sharp-toed boots of some sort of weirdly imbricate reptile skin. And overall, he's riveting to look at, grotesque in that riveting way that flaunts its grotesquery. There are more cheap metal ashtrays and styrofoam cups in this broad hall than you'll see anywhere else ever on Earth. <laughs> Gately's sitting right up front in the first row, so close to the podium he can see the tailor's notch in the chairperson's outsized incisors, but he enjoys twisting around and watching everybody come in and mill around, shaking water off their outerwear, trying to find empty seats. Even on the night of the I-Day holiday, the Providence cafeteria is packed by 2000H. AA does not take holidays any more than the disease does. This is the big established Sunday p.m. meeting for AAs in Enfield and Alston and Brighton. Regulars come every week from Watertown and East Newton, too, often unless they're out on commitments with their own groups. The Provident cafeteria walls, painted in indecisive green, are tonight bedecked with portable felt banners emblazoned with AA slogans in Cub Scoutish blue and gold. The slogans on them appear way too insipid even to mention what they are, e.g. <laughs> one day at a time, for one. The effete Western dress guy concludes his opening exhortation, leaves the opening moment of silence, reads the AA preamble, pulls a random name out of the crested butte cowboy hat he's holding, makes a squinty show of reading it, says he'd like to call Advanced Basics' first random speaker of the evening, and asks if his fellow group member John L. is in the house here tonight. John L. gets up to the podium and says, That is a question I did not used to be able to answer. 
This gets a laugh, and everybody's posture gets subtly more relaxed because it's clear that John L. has some sober time in and isn't going to be one of those AA speakers who's so racked with self-conscious nerves he makes the empathetic audience nervous too. Everybody in the audience is aiming for total empathy with the speaker. That way they'll be able to receive the AA message he's here to carry. Empathy in Boston AA is called identification. Then John L. says his first name and what he is, and everybody calls hello. White Flag is one of the area AA meetings Ennett House requires its residents to attend. You have to be seen at a designated AA or NA meeting every single night of the week or out you go discharged. A house staff member has to accompany the residents when they go to the designated meetings so they can be officially seen there. Every night of the week? Every night. And uh, this takes us to EndNote 134. And if you're brand new, as in like your first three days and so on, mandatory non-punitive house restriction, like veiled Joel Van Dyne, who entered the house just today, 11-8 Interdependence Day, after the ER physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital, who last night had pumped her full of Inderol. Uh, Inderol takes us to uh, footnote A, uh, propranolol hydrochloride, why it erst, a beta-blocking antihypertensive. Oh, she's on the beta blockers. Eh. Uh, pumped her full of Inderol and Nitro had looked upon her unveiled face and been deeply affected and had taken a special interest, a consequence of which, after Joel regained consciousness in speech, had involved placing a call to Pat Montesian, whose paralyzing alcoholic stroke the physician had treated in this very same ER almost seven years before, and in whose case he'd also taken a special interest and had followed such that he was now a personal friend of the sober Pat M's and sat honorarily on Ennett House's board of directors so that his call to Pat's home on Saturday night had gotten Joel into the house on the spot as of Interdependence Day AM's discharge from B&W, leapfrogging literally dozens of waiting list people and putting Joel into Ennett House's intensive program of residential treatment literally before she even knew what was happening, which in retrospect might have been lucky. If you're this new, you're not actually supposed to ever leave the staffer's site, though in practice this rule gets suspended when you have to go to the ladies' room and the staffer is male or vice versa. <laughs> Back to the text. Where am I? Uh, the residence house counselors suggest uh, that they sit right up at the front of the hall where they can see the pores in the speaker's nose and try to identify instead of compare. Again, identify means empathize. Identifying, unless you've got a stake in comparing, isn't very hard to do here. Because if you sit up front and listen hard, all the speaker's stories of decline and fall and surrender are basically alike, and like your own. Fun with the substance, then very gradually, less fun, then significantly less fun, because of, like, blackouts you suddenly come out of on the highway going 145 kilograms, kilograms, kilo, wait, what is it? Kilometers! Kilometers! Kilo kilometers per hour with companions you do not know, nights you awake from in unfamiliar bedding next to somebody who doesn't uh, resemble any known sort of mammal, three-day blackouts you come out of and have to buy a newspaper to even know what town you're in, yes, gradually less and less actual fun, but with some physical need for the substance now instead of the former voluntary fun, then at some point suddenly just very little fun at all, combined with daily uh, terrible hand-trembling need, then dread, anxiety, irrational phobias, dim siren-like memories of fun, trouble with assorted authorities, knee-buckling headaches, mild seizures, and the litany of what Boston AA calls losses. 
Then comes the day. Uh, then come the day I lost my job to drinking. Concord's John L has a huge hanging gut and just no ass at all. The way some <laughs> big older guys' asses seem to get sucked into their body and reappear out front as gut. It's the Hank Hill body. It is the Hank Hill body. I mean, his his gut is not quite as pronounced, but he's no, getting there. It's good. Yeah, give him another ten years. Or one of our other favorite body types, the uh, the Brighton Beach, uh, the Russian cannonball man. Russian cannonball uh, man. My the, the kind of guy who is just like taut bronze belly the size of of a like the biggest pumpkin you've ever seen <laughs> hanging over tiny speedos yeah tiny with speedos. no ass yeah and uh just like lounge like standing proudly arms akimbo on the board, boardwalk staring glazed with oil staring into the ocean at least 50 years old the the proudest Russian man of, of on the Coney Island boardwalk. It's the best type. It is. A, it's a body type we love to see. And, and I guys. say a, a little a prayer of exhortation whenever I see the, yeah. what, those types of guys. It's very good. They're very powerful. Mm-hmm. We love them. Gately in sobriety does nightly sit-ups out of fear this will all of a sudden happen to him as age 30 approaches. Gately is so huge, no one sits behind him for several rows. <laughs> John L. has the biggest bunch of keys Gately's ever seen. <laughs> They're on one of those pull-outable wire janitor's keychains that clips to a belt loop, and the speaker jangles them absently, unaware, his one tip of the hat to public nerves. He's also wearing gray janitor's pants. Lost my damn job, he says. I mean to say I still knew where it was and whatnot. <laughs> I just went in as usual one day, and there was some other fellow doing it, which gets another laugh. Then more losses with the substance seeming like the only consolation against the pain of the mounting losses. And of course, you're in denial about it being the substance that's causing the very losses it's consoling you about. Alcohol destroys slowly but thoroughly is what a fellow said to me the first night I come in up in Concord. And that fellow ended up becoming my sponsor. Then less mild seizures, DTs during attempts to taper off too fast, introduction to subjective bugs and rodents. Then one more binge and more formicative bugs. Then eventually a terrible acknowledgement that some line has been undeniably crossed and fist at the sky as God is my witness vows to buckle down and lick this thing for good, to quit for all time. Then maybe a few white knuckled days of initial success, then a slip, then more pledges, clock watching, Baroque self-regulations, repeated slips back into the substance's relief after like two days abstinence, ghastly hangovers, head-flattening guilt and self-disgust, superstructures of additional self-regulations, i.e. not before 0900 hours, not on a work night, only when the moon is waxing, only in the company of Swedes, (laughs) which also fail. When I was drunk, I wanted to get sober, and when I was sober, I wanted to get drunk, John L. says. I lived that way for years, and I submit to you, that's not living. That's a fucking death in life. Then, unbelievable psychic pain, a kind of peritonitis of the soul, psychic agony, fear of impending insanity. Why can't I quit if I so want to quit unless I'm insane? Appearances at hospital detoxes and rehabs, domestic strife, financial freefall, eventual domestic losses. And then I lost my wife to drinking. I mean, I still knew where she was and whatnot. I just went in one day and there was some other fellow doing it, at which there's not all that much laughter, lots of pained nods. It's often the same all over in terms of domestic losses. Then vocational ultimatums, unemployability, financial ruin, pancreatitis, overwhelming guilt, bloody vomiting, cirrhotic neuralgia, incontinence, neuropathy, nephritis, black depressions, searing pain, 
with the substance affording increasingly brief periods of relief, then finally no relief available anywhere at all. Finally, it's impossible to get high enough to freeze what you feel like being this way. And now you hate the substance. Hate it. But you still find yourself unable to stop doing it, the substance. You find you finally want to stop more than anything on earth, and it's no fun doing it anymore, and you can't believe you ever liked doing it, and but you still can't stop. It's like you're totally fucking bats. It's like there's two yous. And when you'd sell your own dear mum to stop, and still you find can't stop, then the last layer of jolly friendly mask comes off your old friend the substance. It's midnight now, and all masks come off, and you all of a sudden see the substance as it really is. For the first time, you see the disease as it really is, really has been all this time. You look in the mirror at midnight and see what owns you, what's become what you are. A fucking living death, I tell you, it's not being near alive by the end I was undead. Not alive, and I tell you that the idea of dying was nothing compared to the idea of living like that for another five or ten years and only then dying with audience heads nodding in rows like a windswept meadow. Boy, can they ever identify. And then you're in serious trouble, very serious trouble, and you know it, finally, deadly serious trouble, because this substance you thought was your one true friend that you gave up all for gladly, that for so long gave you relief from the pain of the losses your love of that relief caused, your mother and lover and God and compadre has finally removed its smiley face mask to reveal centerless eyes and a ravening maw and canines down to here. It's the face in the floor, the grinning root white face of your worst nightmares. And the face is your own face in the mirror now. It's you. The substance has devoured or replaced and become you. And the puke, drool, and substance-crusted t-shirt you've both worn for weeks now gets torn off and you stand there looking and in the root white chest where your heart, given away to it, should be beating in its exposed chest center and centerless eyes is just a lightless hole, more teeth, and a beckoning taloned hand dangling something irresistible. And now you see you've been had, screwed royal, stripped and fucked and tossed to the side like some stuffed toy to lie for all time in the posture you land in. You see now that it's your enemy and your worst personal nightmare and the trouble it's gotten you into is undeniable and you still can't stop. Doing the substance now is like attending black mass, but you still can't stop even though the substance no longer gets you high. You are, as they say, finished. You cannot get drunk and you cannot get sober. You cannot get high and you, can, you, you cannot get straight. You are behind bars. You are in a cage and can see only bars in every direction. You are in the kind of hell of a mess that either ends lives or turns them around. You are at a fork in the road that Boston AA calls your bottom. Though the term is misleading because everybody here agrees it's more like someplace very high and unsupported. You're on the edge <laughs> of something tall and leaning way out forward. If you listen for the similarities, all these speakers' substance careers seems to terminate at the same cliff's edge. You are now finished as a substance user. It's the jumping off place. You now have two choices. You can either eliminate your own map for keeps, blades are the best, or else pills, or there's always quietly sucking off the exhaust pipe of your repossessable car in the bank-owned garage of your familyless home. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Something I mean, in a, in a very grim chapter. Yeah. Those those little economic things yeah. are uh, particularly grim. Woof. Yeah. Something whimpery instead of banging. Better clean and quiet. And since your whole career has been one long, futile flight from pain, painless. Though of the alcoholics and drug addicts who compose over seventy percent of a given year's suicides, some try to go out with a last great garish balaclavan gesture. One longtime member of the White Flag group is a prog prognathous lady 
named Louise B., who tried to take a map-eliminating dive off the old Hancock building downtown in BS-81, but got caught in the gust of a rising thermal... Uh, a, got a rising thermal only six flights off the roof and got blown cartwheeling back up and in through the smoke glass window of an arbitrage firm's uh, suite on the 34th floor, ending up sprawled prone on a high-gloss conference table with only lacerations and a compound of the collarbone, an experience of willed self-annihilation and external intervention that has left her rabidly Christian. <laughs> 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 rapidly as in foam <laughs> so that she's comparatively ignored and avoided though her AA story being just like everybody else's but more spectacular has become Metro Boston AA myth uh, that to me has parallels for the um, the, the cartoonish uh, brick barrel mm-hmm. uh, thing that we uh, yes. that we were puzzling out earlier yes very good um he likes talking about people falling and then <laughs> rising. Yeah, yes. Uh, in, in some kind of Chuck Jones style. <laughs> uh, but so when you get to this jumping off place at the finish of your substance career, you can either take up the Luger or Blade and eliminate your own personal map. This can be at age 60 or 27 or 17. Or you can get out the very beginning of the Yellow Pages or Internet Psych SVCE file and make a blubbering O200 call phone call and admit to a gentle grandparentish voice that you're in trouble, deadly serious trouble, and the voice will try to soothe you into hanging on until a couple hours go by and two pleasantly earnest, weirdly calm guys in conservative <laughs> attire appear smiling at your door sometime before dawn and speak quietly to you for hours and leave you not remembering anything from what they said except the sense that they used to be eerily like you just where you are, utterly fucked, but now somehow aren't anymore fucked like you. At least they didn't seem like they were, unless the whole thing's some incredibly involved scam, this AA thing. Uh, this is, is going to be a, re- a really stupid question for doing this this long and something I should absolutely know. Mm. But does AA, is it like a for-profit thing? Is there like a, a central institution that like makes money? I should look this up. I, I Look it up because it, it does seem like the thing that I would think doesn't but actually does. Yeah. I, you don't, I mean, you don't hear about AA as like a, a an institute, like a block. You know what I mean? Like I have definitely read the entire Wikipedia page for Alcoholics Anonymous at mm. one point, but I don't recall any of it. It was well, probably like eight, like eight years ago just we'll because it does have check. an interesting history. It does, like it started is, it, during like the depression by something. I think it is. There is a central. I'm going to take a shot that shot in the dark from what I think is right. There is like a central company that operates maybe even for a for a profit just to like keep a central nervous system going. Mm-hmm. But I think like all the independent meetings and stuff, it's not like you're kicking money into into AA national. Yeah, no, I, I don't believe so. Yeah. I'm sure we got we got to look this up. Yeah. Knowing the actual functionings of actual AA feels like an essential addendum to reading this book. Uh, yes, I agree. And but so anyway, you sit there on what's left of your furniture in the lavender dawn light and realize that by now you literally have no other choices besides trying to kill besides trying this AA thing or else eliminating your map. Because I was just wondering, like, who's answering this phone and who's who's dispatching these dudes? I feel you know? like it, it's like a almost like a um, like a DIY network. Yeah, I, like <laughs> a volunteer organization. We'll, we'll look it up. Or is it I'll, like UCB? I'll do. <laughs> yes, I'll do a book <laughs> report on on the fu- the fun- yeah. administrative functioning of AA. Great. 
so you spend the day killing every last bit of every substance you've got in one uh, last joyless, bitter farewell binge and resolve the next day to go ahead and swallow your pride and maybe your common sense too and try these meetings of this program that at best is probably just unitarian happy horseshit and at worst is a cover for some glazed and candy cult type thing where mm. they'll keep you sober by making you spend 20 hours a day selling cellophane cones of artificial flowers on the median strips of heavy flow roads and what defines this cliffish nexus of exactly two total choices this miserable road fork boston aa calls your bottom is that at this point you feel like maybe selling flowers on median strips might not be so bad, <laughs> not compared to what you've got going personally at this juncture. And this at root is what unites Boston AA. It turns out this same resigned, miserable, brainwash and exploit me if that's what it takes type desperation has been the jumping off place for just about every AA you meet, it emerges, once you've actually gotten it up to stop darting in and out of the big meetings and start walking up with your wet hand out and trying to actually personally meet some Boston AAs as the one particular tough old guy or lady you've always been particularly <laughs> scared Sorry, just of. Just like the, 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 the note that the hand is wet. Uh, yeah, it's got to <laughs> be a wet hand. Uh, scared of and drawn to says, nobody ever comes in because things were going really well and they just wanted to round out <laughs> their PM social calendar. Well, here's the thing. Uh, one part of this that I was thinking about is we should have, there should be things like this that aren't, that aren't based around anything. It's just like the local just hanging out. Yeah. I guess that's like kind of what the, I mean, I'm wearing my Dudley pool cleaning shirt right now. I guess that's a, a little, what like the lodge 49 or the Kiwanis we stuff need is. Lo we need lodges. We again. need lodges. And just, we need, so we need social clubs. Yeah. And then we need social clubs that send some members of their social club to other social clubs across town where they just say, they don't have to tell harrowing stories about sobriety. They can just be like, Hey, so here's here's my whole deal. <laughs> what about you guys? Yeah, uh, to like build bonds of uh, of you know social solidarity, not based around uh, you know certain certain things. Well, you you know where this leads, of course. What people you know maybe you're not addicted to something, but maybe you're just drawn to the idea of people you know sitting in a circle in a, a borrowed room talking about themselves. Then maybe you want to take it a step further. Maybe just turn it into a fight club. Yes, we should turn it maybe into a fight club. Maybe people just need fight clubs. Yeah, Fight Club without the pain. How to do that? You are the all singing, all, all dancing, dancing crap, crap of, the world. of the world. I wonder what Foster Wallace thought about Fight Club, the book, yeah, I, the Polanyak, the the novelist and the movie. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure he was entertained by the movie. Who I, wasn't? I <laughs> love that movie. It's, <laughs> it's a good movie. It's a good movie. When they when they showed it in the Woodstock '99 documentary, I was like, "Oh yeah, this is how you explain <laughs> yes. the white man in 1999." Everybody went to see He's Fight Club. He's pissed off and he doesn't know why. Uh, he just wants to break stuff. I mean, we could talk about Fight Club for a while. I do think it is fairly interesting because if Fight Club does posit a reason that you would be pissed off, and it is the reason is alienation, but it's all wrapped up in this weird like 1990s mostly like anti-corporatist like corporate into like, like globalist kind of thing like the, at the at the bottom uh yeah fight club kind of mentioned it like posits the region region for alienation is that there are too many starbucks or something yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> one of too many starbucks uh just like why are all these young men so mad it's because all the coffee's oh, the same all the coffee's the same you can get the same cup of coffee anywhere all right Everybody but everybody comes in dead-eyed and puke white and with their face hanging down around their knees <laughs> and with a well-thumbed firearm and ordinance mail order catalog <laughs> kept, kept safe and available at home map-wise 
for when this last desperate resort of hugs and cliches turns out to be just happy horseshit for you. You are not unique, they'll say. <laughs> this you are the all singing, all dancing crap of the world. Of the, of the world. Uh, talk, with the with the catalogs. <laughs> with the catalogs. Wow. Uh, except, you are not unique. <laughs> except Chuck Palahniuk's Palani- like ha, 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 IKEA catalog. Right. <laughs> David Foster Wallace like gun. Gun. Gun catalog. <laughs> you are not unique. They'll say this initial hopelessness unites every soul in this broad, cold, salad barred hall. <laughs> They're like Hindenburg survivors. Every meeting is a reunion once you've been in for a while. And then the palsied newcomers who totter in desperate and miserable enough to hang in and keep coming and start feebly to scratch beneath the unlikely insipid surface of the thing Don Gately's found, then get united by a second common experience, the shocking discovery that the thing actually does seem to work, does keep you substance-free. It's improbable uh, and shocking. When Gately finally snapped to the fact one day about four months into his Ennett House residency that quite a few days seemed to have gone by without his playing with the usual idea of slipping over to Unit 7 and getting loaded in some non-uremic way the courts couldn't prove, (laughs) that several days had gone by without his even thinking of oral narcotics or a tightly rolled Dubois or a cold foamer on a hot day. <laughs> a he, cold foam, foamer <laughs> on a hot day. When he realized that the various substances he didn't used to be able to go a day without absorbing hadn't even like occurred to him in almost a week, Gailey hadn't felt so much grateful or joyful as just plain shocked. The idea that AA might actually somehow work unnerved him. He suspected some sort of trap. <laughs> some new sort of trap. At this stage, he and the other Ennett residents who were still there and starting to snap to the fact that AA might work began to sit around together late at night going batshit together because it seemed to be impossible to figure out just how AA worked. It did, yes, tentatively seem maybe actually to be working, but Gately couldn't for the life of him figure out just how sitting on hemorrhoid hostile folding chairs every night looking at nose pores and listening to cliches could work. Nobody's ever been able to figure AA out is another binding commonality. And the folks with serious time in AA are infuriating about questions starting with how. You ask the scary old guys how AA works and they smile their chilly smiles and say, just fine. (laughs) It just just works is all. End of story. The newcomers who abandon common sense and resolve to hang in and keep coming and then find their cages all of a sudden open mysteriously after a while share the sense of deep shock and possible trap. About newer Boston AAs with like six months clean, you can see this look of glazed suspicion instead of be- beatific, be- beatific, 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 glee, I, glee, <laughs> an expression like that of bug-eyed natives confronted suddenly with a Zippo lighter. And so this unites them nervously, this tentative assemblage of possible glimmers of something like hope. This grudging move toward maybe acknowledging that this unromantic, unhip, cliched AA thing, so unlikely and unpromising, so much the inverse of what they'd come too much to love, might really be able to keep the lover's toothy maw at bay. The process is the neat reverse of what brought you down and in here. Substances start out being so magically great, so much the interior jigsaw's missing piece, that at the start you just know, deep in your gut, that they'll never let you down. You just know it, but they do. And then this goofy, slapdash, anarchic system of low-rent gatherings and corny slogans and saccharine grins and hideous coffee is so lame you just know there's no way it could ever possibly work except for the utterest morons. And then Gately seems to find out AA turns to be the very loyal friend he would thought he'd had and then lost when you came in. And so you hang in and stay sober and straight 
and out of sheer hand-burned-on-hot-stove terror, you heed the improbable-sounding warnings not to stop pounding out the nightly meetings, even after the substance cravings have left, and you, still, and you feel like you've got a grip on the thing at last, and can now go it alone. You still don't try to go it alone. You heed the improbable warnings, because by now you have no faith in your own sense of what's really improbable and what isn't, since AA seems, improbably enough, to be working. And with no faith in your own senses, you're confused, flummoxed. And when people with AA time strongly advise you to keep coming, you nod robotically and keep coming. <laughs> and you sweep floors and scrub out ashtrays and fill stained steel urns with hideous coffee. And you keep getting ritually down on your big knees every morning and night, asking for help from a sky that still seems a burnished shield against all who would ask aid of it. How can you pray to a god you believe only morons believe in still? But the old guys say it doesn't yet matter what you believe or don't believe. Just do it, they say. And like a shock-trained organism without any kind of independent human will, you do exactly like you're told. You keep coming and coming, nightly. And now you take pains not to get booted out of the squalid halfway house you'd at first tried so hard to get discharged from. You hang in and hang in, meeting after meeting, warm day after cold day. And not only does the urge to get high stay more or less away, but more general life quality type things. Just as improbably promised at first when you'd come in, things seem to get progressively somehow better inside for a while, then worse, then even better, <laughs> then for a while worse in a way that's still somehow better, realer. You feel weirdly unblinded, which is good, even though a lot of the things you see now about yourself and how you've lived are horrible to have to see. And by this time, the whole thing is so improbable and unparsable that you're so flummoxed you're convinced you're maybe brain damaged still <laughs> at this point from all the years of substances. And you figure you'd better hang in in this Boston AA where older guys who seem to be less damaged or at least less flummoxed by their damage will tell you in terse, simple, imperative clauses exactly what to do and where and when to do it, though never how or why. And at this point, you've started to have an almost classic sort of blind faith in the older guys, a blind faith in them born not of zealotry or even belief, but just of a chilled conviction that you have no faith whatever left in yourself, which takes us to end note 135, a conviction common to all who hang in with AA after a while and abstracted in the slogan, my best thinking got me here. <laughs> Back to the text. And now if the older guys say jump, you ask them to hold their hand at the desired height. And now they've got you and you're free. Keep going. Or? I think we're at like 37 minutes. Okay. I think that that's a good stopping place. Great. It's obviously not the end of this chapter. No, it's a bit longer. Um, one thing I'm trying to remember. Uh, Gately's murder has not caught up with him yet, right? No. Okay. Um, his manslaughter. His manslaughter. Although, is it? I guess is it manslaughter if you've also kidnapped and bound him? I don't know what the I'm charge sure. on that on the what the charge on that would be. I'm not I, sure what the maybe sec murder on second degree, the rare second degree. Mm. That's the degree of murder I've never been able to quite understand. I understand I think first it's, and third. I think you. I think you call it. If I understand second degree murder, I think it's intentional but not premeditated. Okay. So it's like. So you didn't like. You, you didn't. Know. You didn't plan mm -hmm. to murder somebody yep. but you you did your action with full mm -hmm. knowledge of of what its effects might be hmm i bet with a good lawyer he could at least keep it to, to, third. to third but the kidnapping is going to be really hard kidnapping's tough you don't want to bounce that's a, a really bad sentence anyway yeah you don't want to bind bind somebody and move them 
that's always a that's always a bad, How bad move. How ironic! Someone in the audience of the the tennis we have on mute is wearing a Nike hat that says "Just Do It." Mm-hmm. Sports, AA. Just do it. Just do it. Just do it. Um, Don't think about it too hard. Just do it. So a uh, long description. See, the thing is, uh, like, obviously his writing is. Uh, his mode of writing is interesting in its own way and how it fits into this. But you know, that's nothing, that is nothing that I have not heard about AA before, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. This is the first time I I've ever, I had ever gotten to depth of reading about AA it was in this book. I would say, when did you read this book? College, in- sophomore year of college, sophomore year of college. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I, this is all, this basically conforms to what I have heard about AA is mm-hmm. that it's like, <laughs> it, it is, it is fairly amateur and DIY in its construction mm-hmm. and you, it, you can't ask questions of it. You just have to do the things that they tell you. And f- if you commit to it, it for a lot of people, it works. Yeah. So I feel like the, uh, the more current wisdom about it is that, uh, ac- actually the success rate of AA is not uh, particularly high compared to other, like, um, other other more scientific based treatments etc cetera, etc cetera. but I, I i don't know i don't know where the what what the what the popular take on aa is at this point i think right now if if i could put a thumb on it it would be uh there are other model there are other addiction models that are gaining more traction in yes. terms of treating it including harm reduction uh-huh. which is basically you like continuing to use a substance, but not in a way that will kill you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, th- I think that's yeah the other thing. I you know is I mean, it, it uh, is it completely a sham? I have no I have no idea. I mean, again, what I do know about AA is that it was just come up with by some guy yeah. in the thir- in like the thirties. It does not have. I don't. I believe it is not based it, in on like anything. Scientific method or statistical no. anything. What it is is based on a, like a guy who figured out how to stop being an alcoholic and yeah. turned his the what he did into a system. Yeah. of other people. I yeah. mean, I think the thing of it that uh, I know that people have cr- critiques of it. I know that there are uh, lots of people uh, who have had bad experiences with the organization. Like all organizations, especially ones without uh, much oversight, uh, there are abuses within them. In fact, I do know one of the common jokes of AA is the, quote, 13th step, mm-hmm. which is uh, hooking up with your sponsor. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is a bar in the Lower East, one of the worst bars in the East Village, Lower East Side, called the 13th step. I've gone to the 13th step. Yes, they do have it beer pong really in bad. there, which is fine if you're looking for a place to play beer pong yeah. in New York. Or, uh, yeah, get get um, harassed by, like, the like worst fr- dudes in the row. world. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're looking for that, for a Woodstock 99 kind of vibe in an East Village kind of setting, go to the 13th step. Right. Uh, so... I mean, I think that those are the things, the things that I, the thing that I find somewhat admirable about it is the social element of it. The thing that I was saying yes. that we should replicate, but without it being a part of this uh, somewhat spiritual uh, quest for for healing and, and self-purification. Yes. Which I do. I imagine tends to lead like lead to cult like. Um, um, I don't know. Thought. Sure. But I guess the the savior of AA actually becoming a cult is that nobody at any point tried to become the cult leader. Yeah, and I, I don't think that they're, you know, mm-hmm. people don't have to contribute money. Yeah. Which is helpful. Yeah, and there was never anything like, 
you know, the guy who invented it, like created a system and like was earnestly trying to help people not like I, I alone can cure right. your, your addiction and all the, the cure must flow through me personally or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. Uh, and there's, there's something in there of a, you know, local organization yeah. that it's, uh, you know, people with a certain level of similar community experience of living in the Metro Boston area. Mm-hmm. And therefore things might be a little different than if you go to AA in Phoenix or something. Yeah, exactly. Um, the, I, I just did a brief glance at the, uh, Wikipedia and it does not appear to be, it it's almost seems like an like an anarchist organization in a certain it's way. It's like all volunteer. Yeah, um, which is cool. It I, is I cool. don't know. I I think that's cool. Uh, we, I had someone um, DM me. We were talking about irony mm-hmm. and the new sincerity, and uh, basically saying that AA is like the the sincere the new sincerity of this. Yeah, I mean, he talks about it in there is that irony. you have to like give give yourself like. The action of giving yourself away to something that you know to be corny is like yes. one of the th- the things of like radical, uh, radical giving up that is a, a central tenet of the AA, yes. AA thing. Uh, um, and that and at a certain cliches, level, the, the corniness is the point. Cl- cliches and uh, vulnerability and empathy are so cringe, are they not? Mm-hmm. And yet, it, you got you, you got to do, do it. You do have to do or it, or you'll die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, yeah. bo- both on an individual level and I would argue it on a community level. I also just watched Midsommar for the first time last night, mm-hmm. and which is, I guess, you know, that's what happens when you're in a cult that maybe the the goals are a little different and then you're like <laughs> yeah. isolated. I've got, I've got a, a, a weird cult mindset today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, they, they seemed happy, though. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know. know. I haven't, I haven't seen the movie. They okay. were, were they simply vibing? I would say that they were simply vibing. Um, I don't know. I not much else to get into here. I mean, I guess that the the you know of the substance. I guess a, a big of a development of this is is lo- we are now learning that Joelle has been moved into the Ennett House. Yes. Uh, when we last saw her, she was taking an uh, oblivion sing- seeking uh, overdose. Yes. So she lived. She, and she, she got some sort of favor, favor from a, a an Ennett House board member who also uh, treated the like leader of mm-hmm. Ennett House. Um, so I guess that will you know that development will develop. I don't know in another two hundred pages or something. Well, yeah, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else? Uh, I in terms of just general business, uh, somebody did message us after last week's segment when we were catching up on that uh, math heavy yeah. end note. I, at least two people messaged us to point out that that is one of the parts in the book uh, where Wallace goes deep into math that is apparently wrong. Wrong, yeah. Which I'm incorrect. like, sure, totally. I uh, don't, I don't see why not. <laughs> and somebody was also bringing up that that. Um, that end note, which is something that I brought up very, very early on in the, in our reading, um, mm-hmm. to my cre- credit of my critical th- reading skills, uh-huh. is that that end note in particular uh, calls into question who is the narrator of this because yes. it involves like direct address of Pemulus and Hal mm-hmm. to the reader. Yes, but I guess it is like the sense of that is, is you know, my thought of that end note was that it was presented as like Pemulus writing an end note in the eschaton manual 
right. or, or whatever right. to the to a hypothetical player of eschaton in the future extolling the virtue of his statistical delineation system well technically it's it's pemulus dictating to hal right who who can memorize what he's saying because hal has a eidetic memory or whatever mm-hmm. um yeah uh i have a, 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 i have a theory of what the narration is that i realize that it's not i'll just it, it will be a spoiler so you, um, so you have I in the DM that you were chatting with that guy. You said that uh, you will need to wait another hundred or so pages to yeah, reveal your theory. At least, so okay. Well, we'll put a pin on it. Pin put a it. pin in it. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know if the math being wrong is a point, or if it, you know, if he a- if he actually got math wrong and thought it was right, or it just it literally doesn't matter. Yeah, if the right. math is good or not. Right, because I guess he wrote like a whole like published like thesis kind of thing David Foster Wallace did that was also like not mathematically <laughs> sound. It what just was seemed, he doing? Was know. he doing it as a bit? Cause that would be funny. I don't think funny. it was as a bit. I don't think he does anything as a bit, but uh, it's more just like you, you're good at writing. Just don't, <laughs> you don't need to be a math guy too. Yeah. Or like fact check it or something. I don't yeah. know. Find another math guy. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it was fact checking. He Show was like, your work. <laughs> Show your work, David. Uh, anything else that we need to do for this? I mean, I, just another one of these very harrowing, um, harrowing addiction chapters. Qu- I guess mm-hmm. not quite as harrowing as the the poor Tony part. I no, mean, but that that's like one the, of the gritty, grosser ones. Yeah, yeah, the gritty. As I said during that discussion, you know, '90s style gritty heroin mm-hmm. uh, 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 depictions, and this is more of the the harrowingness of of the uh, grimy bureaucratic coldness of uh deciding to join AA. You will, of course. You can't line up uh, a situation where addicts are sharing stories at a podium without uh, getting some future stories and stories that are, in fact, quite harrowing. So stay tuned. Is that the second half of this chapter? No, I I don't think so. But definitely in the future, there are some. I do. I will just say, maybe end of this, I do very much enjoy his very vivid portrayal of the type of guy uh, giving that speech, the like fake Boston janitor cowboy. Yeah, Boston janitor cowboy with a bolo tie. Yeah, with a bolo tie and like Sick. his snakeskin shoes for yeah. some reason. Swag. And even just the way that he, that guy was talking, it was a very complete picture of a of a guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right. Anything else that you want to get into for this episode? I got nothing. Do we, anything else percolating the discourse that we need to address? Not that I'm aware of. Things people getting mad at it or anything? Eh, people have calmed down. Does that think it was a calm week? Kind of, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I've maybe I've blocked out some stuff, but yeah. And if there is, I don't want to deal with it. <laughs> All right, we don't have to talk about it. All right, well, then uh, we will be back next week for more. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.